0: From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz Group headquarters at 350 Franco Gaba Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On today's edition: Lyft, Google, GM, and the road to self-driving cars; Belk, CT Anderson on retail and sustainability; and why GE and Cisco are banking on smart lighting. Another illuminating episode this week on 350. It's March 18th, 2016. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. I'm Joel McCower here with Green Biz Senior Editor, Lauren Hepler. Hey, Lauren.
1: Hey there. How's it going?
0: Oh, it's been another crazy week. Uh, I was running around Silicon Valley. I think you were doing something having to do with Singapore.
1: I was. Uh, Yeah. So it's been sort of a crazy week. Uh, I think a couple days ago, I was tuned in to both of our old stomping grounds uh, in D.C., uh gm lyft and google were over there talking about self-driving cars and then like you just alluded to i ran over to a cool incubator in san francisco that actually the government of singapore runs they're trying to become the first smart nation so sort of scaling up the smart city thing but obviously singapore is a city state so kind of an interesting environment
0: well, it's good to hear that more than the Supreme Court and snarky political partisanship is going on in our nation's capital these days.
1: Yeah, and speaking of DC, our good friend and senior writer Mike Hower was also in town. You know, he'll be coming up later in this episode. Um, but it sounded like you guys had a good chat.
0: But let's start, as we always do, with the Green Biz Week in Review. <music> Let's start off with the uh, driving story this week, which is the Senate hearings. Lauren, you uh, listened in on that. I watched you for a couple hours peering into your screen, listening to what's going on in Washington, D.C. What was going on in Washington, D.C.?
1: Yeah, riveting flashbacks to my days covering politics, <laughs> but um, no, it, know it will. Yeah, it actually was pretty fascinating because you hear so much about self-driving cars or the term of art autonomous vehicles, um, and and really the the hearing focused. It was a Senate hearing focused on sort of um, how the government should go about both ensuring the the safety and reliability of these cars without totally stunting innovation. And you had the R and D guy. Guys from Google and GM there, and as well as a a policy guy from Lyft, which GM obviously just put five hundred million dollars into. So they were talking about things like how you prepare for bad weather, how that would sort of affect the sensors these cars are equipped with, and then the ever popular issue of hackers and cybersecurity and sort of the issue where we have this gray area right now of things like Tesla's autopilot mode, where you have sort of inattentive human supervisors of these cars. Um, So lots of things that they're working through, but obviously this is a technology we talk a lot about in our verge event series that, that could potentially have a big upshot on traffic congestion and efficiency.
0: Yeah. One of the questions I have about this and, and, uh, I read a, a piece uh, Gizmodo wrote about um, this, is that the senators who were holding the hearing seemed like they really didn't get autonomous vehicles. They didn't really understand what some of the issues... I mean, was apparently somebody asked, well, how will this technology reduce driver fatigue? Well, if there's no driver. and It's a self-driving vehicle. I mean, it's, did you get that sense that the senators sort of are or aren't with the technology uh, keeping up with technology
1: well the lead of my piece was sort of had a similar bent it was about how google and gm and uh, actually delphine auto supplier each wanted to play a short video sort of encapsulating what their companies are working on in this realm and they couldn't even get the videos to play so it's like if you can't handle basic av like oh that's not great for the prospects here um but Yeah. yeah so the question about sort of i read the gizmodo article also and the question about sort of inattentive drivers came up a little more in terms of this gray area now where you maybe need a human to be able to jump back in if something goes wrong with the pseudo autonomous mode but that's completely irrelevant questions sort of how, and it's something that comes up on other issues like patents and and other high tech like drones. Um, How do far away politicians regulate um, technology that's moving really fast and doesn't really have a precedent?
0: So where do you think this is going? I mean, how much did you get a sense of whether Congress is going to take, as you so nicely put it, a hands-on or hands-off approach to self-driving cars
1: yeah well the the real question is sort of whether this battle will be fought at the state level which it currently is now um so i think there's uh, a couple dozen states that are actively looking at uh, implementing systems for testing self-driving cars. California is one that's out in front. Um, but the question that was raised at the hearing was really whether the federal government should be coming in to make it more cohesive instead of having uh, the, the Google representative sort of called it a patchwork of laws, which worries him because you might not be able to drive a car across state lines if the laws are really different.
0: You are now entering Nebraska. Please put your hands back on
1: the wheel <laughs> right exactly and not to mention all the, the one of the other things that's really interesting from a business perspective is who's liable when something goes wrong with these cars maybe changing the liability from an individual driver to an auto whoever the manufacturer of the car is um which could obviously be a big uh, potential financial shift
0: yeah there's a lot of questions that these things bring up i mean you know what happens when when two autonomous vehicles run into each other and you know, it just, it just continues to uh, push the envelope of, 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 of laws and insurance and liability. And, uh, and then of course, all the technology that needs to keep up with that. And then of course, uh, as you said, cybersecurity and privacy become big issues as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, the one other thing I'm really curious to see is when more research comes out about, what the actual potential is for autonomous vehicles to curb pollution. This is something that's going on very actively in the ride sharing space. Um, how much is this a nice to have and a novelty versus something that you can quantify in terms of reducing emissions. So that will definitely be something to follow. Uh, but another industry that we covered this week, uh, which is much more established in the realm of sustainability, is big time retail. Our senior writer Barbara Grady sat down with Belk's Candice C.T. Anderson, who is in charge of sustainability for their large scale retail operation.
0: Yeah, I mean, retail has been showing the way for a while. Uh, we've covered uh, well uh, Walmart over the past 10 years since it jumped into the fray back in 2005, and of course Target and Kohl's and uh, a number of others, Whole Foods and and others are you know pretty active in this space. I mean, Belk. I don't think most people know Bilk is a I guess a small retailer. I'm not even sure where they're located. Do you know?
1: They're in sixteen states, barbara story said, um but yeah, it's not in California, not in d c where I've lived,
0: yeah, so they're um uh just uh go you know relatively getting started uh, c t's been the uh director of sustainability since twenty thirteen um and but she came from Walmart, right
1: she did, which is interesting,
0: yeah, so walmart uh i think seems to be uh uh, s- spreading this around in terms of uh we've seen uh, Rob Kaplan who left Walmart to uh, go to cl- the closed loop fund and uh so Walmart seems to be a uh, a spawning ground for talent and and particularly In the area of not not just in retail, as in the case of CT, but in in the whole area of sustainability, waste and reductions in energy and other things. Mm -hmm. Uh, Miranda Miranda Anderson, or now Miranda Ballantyne, uh, actually went from there to I think she's the head of energy and efficiency for, I believe, the Air Force. So there's a it's they're becoming a good farm team for uh, the rest of the industry.
1: So in terms of specific things that CT is working on at Belk, Barbara laid out uh, sort of a focus on recycling and reuse, which we know is huge sort of across all industries as the circular economy gets really in vogue. Um, And then another perennial retail issue, reducing that material packaging and then expanding energy and water efficiency, as well as getting LED lights in all of these big retail spaces. Um, but I think the question here is sort of uh, like with all of these retailers, how aggressive do they get into sort of the next frontier of sustainability, like really getting aggressive with renewables and then, yeah, sort of curbing that waste, like more towards a zero waste or circular economy model. Um, so it'll be interesting to see, but cool to have a company that you don't necessarily hear about as often, not a not a Patagonia, as we like to say, um, right. and, and sort of see what they're working on.
0: Yeah, no, it's good uh, that they're working on stuff. But the the thing that's important to keep in mind with uh, retailers uh, like Belk or Walmart or others is that uh, probably well under 20% of their footprint is, is their actual facilities and distribution centers, and even their trucks. Uh, so much of it's in the supply chains, the things that are being made. And I'm I don't know enough about Belk to know how much they, they have in private label brands, house brands, and things where they're actually manufacturing or responsible for specifying things as opposed to just buying other packaged goods from other companies. But you know that really is the, the big frontier of, of how do you push this up the supply chain so that not just your operations are green, but what you're selling is also equally environmentally responsible.
1: Mm-hmm. And the other question there is how much of that do you take on as an individual company versus working with industry groups? I think Belk is working with the Sustainable Apparel Coalition, which is more focused on those sort of deep-rooted supply chain issues. Uh, but yeah, this is something we'll we'll definitely keep watching uh, in the meantime- Whatever it takes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, in the meantime, though, there were two other companies that are a little familiar to uh, a lot of people in the sustainability field. One of them is GE's so big industrial giant, and Cisco, uh, best known for sort of the Silicon Valley technology stacks that they provide. Um, but our senior writer Heather Clancy took a look at those companies and others that are pushing the realm of smart lighting further into the mainstream. She specifically pegged the story to news of a big new deployment of smart lighting for jp morgan chase they're going to be outfitting their financial outpost with uh, more efficient led lights Um, but sort of the question is how much this technology can move from like uh, a nice green addition that a company can talk about to sort of the default for businesses
0: well it's getting there i mean and what we're finding and what's cool about lighting is that it's 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 kind of the gateway drug for uh for sustainability for uh not just for companies uh but also for cities and that's to say that uh it's lighting is one of those things that that pencils out quite nicely that there's a very solid business case that you can um uh get a good return on investment uh, a, a couple three years perhaps maybe maybe even less 18 months in some cases and and so it makes it allows companies to do some significant things in terms of of uh, upgrading their lighting, making it smarter, so it's it's better quality or or there when you need it and not there when you're not when you don't. Uh, but also opening it up things up because a lot of these smart lighting um, uh, systems, like uh, you mentioned uh, or Heather mentions, Enlighted in, in the in the in the story, there when they put smart uh technology uh sensors and and such on lighting fixtures those things can also double to uh, for lots of other purposes so they can look at heating ventilation air conditioning security movement occupancy um and they can track actually track individual people which is a little bit scary but if you want uh if if you want to to be found or or the system to know where you are so that when you you know do things it knows it's you um, there's a lot there. And it, it all starts with lighting, which of course is you know, in you know, almost every square foot of, of every building. And so that's I think one of the the great things about this. And the same with cities, cities that want to create a smart grid, smart traffic lights and 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 other smart systems and even EV charging, Wi-Fi. Often start with lighting because that's something, again, that pays for itself fairly quickly, but allows you to go, again, all over the city because almost every block has some kind of city lighting and, uh, and put in some smart systems that, again, can provide safety uh, and other kinds of systems beyond illumination.
1: The city part is definitely fascinating. Uh, The commercial spending, though, the, the projections that we're starting to see for that in terms of the financial windfall that companies in this space could be seeing are pretty jarring. Heather cites one figure from Navigant Research. They expect commercial spending for networked lighting controls to total $38 billion between 2015 and 2024. So this is definitely a space we'll continue to watch closely. But in the meantime, let's delve deeper into the world of technology and talk about a story you wrote this week joel on microsoft We actually kicked off this week with a piece from you, Joel, that was about sustainability getting a promotion at Microsoft. What in the world does that mean?
0: <laughs> well, in its simplest, uh, the simple part of the story is that uh, Rob Bernard, who's uh, for seven or so years has been the company's chief sustainability strategist, um, got his position, moved to a, a more to the central part of the company, from a little bit lower down the organizational ladder. He now reports to the corporate VP, who reports to the company's president, and chief legal officer, Brad Smith, who reports to the CEO, Satya Nadella. And so um, he was before he was off in a, something called the public sector division. But where he reports isn't as important as what this means for sustainability at Microsoft. And I think one of the reasons I like this story is that it's a good example of where leadership companies are going, of how the sustainability function is moving from sort of the traditional environmental health and safety or, or renewable energy, or, but off in the side to a more central part of the organization. So uh, I talked with uh, Rob, and uh, we're going to play a number of clips. I started off by asking him, what are the implications of this new reporting structure? I think there's multiple level of implications. I think
2: there's implications for our operations and certainly our governance model. And then over time, I think the ambition, obviously, is to have greater positive impact for our stakeholders and our customers, right? And you can't get to those second order opportunities unless you make sure you got the first ones right. And so by being part of the central organization, what's happening is we're sort of taking a look at where we've been over the last six years on sustainability and more importantly, where do we want to go? And as a result of even the, you know, early days of that look, it's become obvious that we need to staff up in a number of areas that are becoming more and more focused around sustainability. So our data center team is increasing its staff, uh, our legal and policy teams are increasing its staff, and uh, multiple parts of our operational team are also increasing their staff. So we're
0: laying the foundational pieces for sort of where do we go next, next as an organization? So one of the things I wanted to ask him uh, around all this is is sort of an old question, which is you know there's, there's his favorite question about you ask a sustainability person uh, how many people in your company work in sustainability, uh, and if they're smart they'll answer all of them. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> that's sort of the goal to get make this part of everyone's job. And I said, well, is is that what's going on here, or how do you define who's part of sustainability now?
2: You know, it's interesting because. The question is it noticeable or not as part of everyone's job is almost how I think about it, which is if as – I'll give you an example that already exists, which is if I take a flight instead of doing this by phone to come see you and do an interview, right, is it part of my conscious job that the company is already committed to paying for the carbon for my seat down there? Maybe, maybe not, right? Maybe I think about it, maybe I don't. Certainly the tool where I book my airline travel says, oh, hey, Rob, it's X hundred pounds of carbon and, you know, oh. Why is that? Oh, because my my division has to pay for that carbon, right? So there's, it's embedded in the way you get to and from work because we're doing more and more shuttles and connectors and those buses are powered with renewable fuel sources. All of those things become embedded. So the infrastructure changes from underneath you. Now the issue is, does that nudge you? You know, for people who've read the book, nudge, does it nudge your consciousness so that when you – get on an email or a Skype call with your customer, and now you're talking about things that they're doing in their world, are you thinking differently about the opportunities to leverage technology? That's sort of a large portion of the company will be involved in that sort of nudging type approach. Then there's the direct engagement, which is, hey, we're making a much bigger uh, investment around things like smart buildings through our partner ecosystem. And so more and more of our staff is actually actively working with public sector and private sector companies around the world to say, hey, look, we've got through our partners and through our consulting division an opportunity to help you reduce your energy load 10 to 20% in your buildings. Let's talk about how we can get you on that path. Now, that's an explicit change of your job. Right. And there are definitely an increasing number of people doing that kind of work as well. And then there is what we talked about, the new roles where we didn't even have anybody doing Function X yesterday, but Function X tomorrow will be covered by a very experienced, hopefully high-impact person.
1: So is all of this sort of something that's nice for the company to be doing, or are there sort of economic and financial benefits that they're looking at?
0: Well, it's a, it's a little bit of both, but I think what's been interesting, and you know, Microsoft's been on this journey a long time, and they've found some good ways to turn this into uh, at least profitable internally, such as uh, the carbon um, carbon tax internally that they have that that levies a a cost to companies to, to the parts of the companies divisions and business units based on how much energy they use, and that money then goes into a fund that funds. Uh, energy efficiency upgrades and things.
1: Yeah, I covered that last year. That's actually uh, $10 million. They put out a white paper. That's how much they've raised so far through that. Um, and they, yeah, sort of a blueprint for other companies to follow. We'll link to that in the notes as well.
0: Real money. Yeah. And they've been sort of setting this, the example of, of what an internal carbon tax looks like and, and how companies can think about a carbon tax you know, for that someday when there might actually be one uh, a nation or, or multi uh tax uh, scheme going on to help regulate climate change emissions. Um, but it's beyond that. And what's interesting, what I like about what they're doing at Microsoft is actually turning this into a business opportunity. So here's, here's what Rob had to say about that. If we were to stop at the, hey, this is
2: a corporate citizen endeavor only, And I think then you look at the cost in one dimension. If you look at it and say, no, 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 this is a fundamental way in which not only Microsoft, but increasingly a larger percentage of our customers are or are about to be running and thinking about their business. And because data sits at the center of efficiency across multiple areas, then by doing these things, if we're effective and thoughtful and we experiment in ourselves and get it right, then there's an opportunity to work with our customers to grow revenue. And certainly in the areas of buildings, we've seen that, Right. Other areas, you know, I think it's fair to say that in any portfolio, we'll make certain attempts and try certain things, and they won't necessarily be immediately expandable, but that's okay. That's part of coming down the learning curve, and that's something that we absolutely have to do not just as a company but as a society.
0: So are there actual business opportunities or are there new products and services for customers that you see coming out of some of these investments in sustainability? Yes, and
2: for us, since our model is through partner, it's actually – creating, expanding, and accelerating our partner ecosystem. So if you look in the smart building space, whether it's companies who have worked with us historically in the smart buildings or even new companies that are coming onto our platform, those are net new business opportunities for those ISVs and those systems integrators and for Microsoft at the platform level. So that absolutely creates new business model opportunities for us.
0: Can you give an example of
2: of where sustainability led to some new opportunities? Sure. So we actually took our campus, and we happened to work with a partner at the time called Iconics. Uh, And we said, what would we be able to do with six different building management systems, 500 million points of data, and the fact that all of this stuff is currently disconnected? Well, by working with them to help them evolve their software, which historically wasn't real estate-centric but became so, we actually helped them create a line of business, We reduced our energy costs by an excess of ten percent. Got a payback in less than eighteen months while we were experimenting, and now we're rolling that out to public and private sector companies, both large and small, on a worldwide basis through that partnership. And that'll accelerate those kinds of projects, or the kinds of things
0: that you're going to see us doing more and more of.
1: Do we know yet, sort of, what the next step is and where all of this goes from here?
0: Well, you know, I think it's more of same. I think you know, taking this idea of how do you how do you You know, create these kinds of partnerships that create uh, new business opportunities for your partners, which ultimately leads to more sales or 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 uh, whatever the business model is now for database software and analytics software. Um, But, you know, I asked Rob, you know, what's my usual last question that I often do with interviews? What's the story you want to be able to tell about where sustainability is going to go in a year or two at Microsoft? Yeah, I'd, I'd go a step further than what's the story I'd like to tell to what are the things I want to be able to show. So, hey,
2: look at the, the volume of work that we've done with customers around the world across various resource efficiency areas. Hey, look at the impact of the you know carbon offset projects. We're currently over 3 million people and 30 different projects. Hey, what does that number look like for a year from now? Right. Have we done anything that's really been interesting and breakthrough in those programs and with that carbon work? Hey, how much are you actually investing in plowback programs into your own innovation for your own divisions? What are some examples? Hey, it's great. Yeah. You. OK. What does the NPV look on like on those projects? And can customers do the same kind of thing? Right. And hopefully coming out of that, there will absolutely be a bunch of stories, but it's really more like, hey, we can point to concrete things that are happening as a direct result of the investments we're making.
0: And, and the, the idea is that you can then scale those?
2: Uh, yes. I mean, I've always said that, you know, for people who've heard me talk about the smart building stuff, it's great we've got 125 buildings and 15 million square feet and six building management systems. It's really interesting when you're talking about a billion
0: square feet or two billion square feet. That's the impact that we need to have. Big plans for sustainability at Microsoft. will keep watching. turn now to the topic of carbon pricing, carbon taxes and all that. A few weeks ago, Green Biz, in partnership with Ingersoll-Ran, released a research report talking about how companies are thinking about carbon pricing. And here to talk about that, who wrote the article about that, is senior writer Mike Hauer. Mike, welcome to 350.
3: Hey, Joel. Great to be here with you today.
0: Mike, you're uh, in town here at 350, after visiting from Washington DC, so it's great to have you here on the left coast. So tell us about this report. Uh, what were sort of the the key takeaways?
3: So I think one of the one of the key things that really popped out to me was the fact that most companies see the writing on the wall, and especially after COP twenty uh, one, they realize that, that a price on carbon is is likely going to happen if not soon, sometime in the future, and if they if they get ahead of the ball and they uh, you know, invest in, in these technologies, energy efficiency technologies, renewable technologies, that when it finally does come around, they'll actually have a competitive advantage. And uh, one of the interesting stats was that, according to the Green Biz Research, 75% of the largest organizations, which are those with revenues between $1 billion and $10 billion, uh, and 82% of all others feel that they would be better off or unaffected if a mandatory process on carbon were instituted.
0: Oh, that's, I mean, that's like... a. Overwhelming mandate in some regards, and, and so how do you distinguish between uh, the price on carbon that we we all, we all pay in the form of uh, what's, what's often referred to as externalities, and the, a particular price on carbon that's paid, you know, through some other means through one of these the kinds of schemes that they're talking about here.
3: Yeah. So essentially, you know, we're already paying a price on carbon, no matter what, through different, through, through extreme weather events that cause billions of dollars of damage. You know, Hurricane Sandy costs billions of dollars to U.S. taxpayers. Um, also other externalities that we pay for increased insurance, um, medical costs, etc. The Price on carbon basically just sets a flat rate. Uh, you know, I know the, one of the most recent ones was uh, Senator Bernie Sanders and current, uh, current presidential candidate. He he's planning on starting with $15 per i believe per ton and then raising that gradually to $72 by 20 2017 and then eventually it'll it'll rise all the way to 150 so it's kind of kind of phasing it in instead of just putting a flat fee that'll that'll knock the economy office. So this
0: is a proposal that he introduced, uh, a bill he actually introduced yeah, this in, was, the, in this,
3: the Senate? Yeah, this was re- introduced right before COP21, actually. And it, the idea, I mean, it's classic Sanders. So his idea is to take the revenues from this and uh, give tax credits to people making less than 100 or families making less than 100,000 a year. And actually, one of the things that would benefit business from this and other other similar tax uh schemes would be that you could reduce the corporate tax rate. So companies that are already low carbon would actually stand to benefit a lot.
0: Well, you know, it seems that so many of the companies that, that we talk to uh, and that we look at are already doing so much in uh, energy efficiency and, and taking measures that they're already sort of on the path to be able to cope with, with this. I mean, efficiency, I imagine, would be a key player in all of this.
3: Yeah, energy efficiency. You know, they call it the world's first fuel. Um, it's it's probably the least sexy of of the of the sustainability energy technologies, but it's it's also one of the lowest hanging fruits and something that that people just do already. Um, you know, oper- it's it's one of the easiest ways to cut your your costs when, especially your you know, let's say you're you have a, a building, um, cutting cutting your costs and energy use can really go a long way in helping your bottom line. So last summer you
0: were. Uh, I- Climate Corps fellow as part of the EDF Environmental Defense Fund program. Um, and you uh, worked at, at Pacific Gas and Electric, the the utility here in the San Francisco Bay Area in Northern California, working on helping uh, energy develop energy efficient programs or implement them. I know you, you worked on a little bit more in residential, but there's a lot going on there mm-hmm. around business programs. What did you see? What did you learn about what it takes to get businesses to implement energy efficiency? Because even though there's Often very attractive returns on investment, they still don't do it.
3: I'd say one of the one of the hardest co- uh, one of the hardest things to do when you're trying to sell energy efficiency to, to especially to executives is that it's it's more of a long term benefit. So you know a lot of a lot of CEOs are under pressure from shareholders to kind of take a more short term quarterly approach to profits, and that doesn't always take the case. The payback on a you know the payback on an energy efficiency project could be several years, if not decades. Um, which is actually why uh, w- one of the things I was doing with PG&E was uh, helping with their financial teams. They're developing a lot of innovative financial programs that kind of allow you to, uh, rather than rather than create like tax credit incentives, uh, state of California and a lot of other states are starting to create these financing models that allow you to you know take out loans at a more affordable rates uh, up now to get the to get the units right now. Like for example, uh, creating a, an HVAC uh, building an HVAC system in one of your buildings, uh, updating that can cost a lot of money that a lot of companies don't have but if you could get that money cheaply uh, you know the cost of money is always important Um, you're much more likely to embrace it so basically at the end of the day you don't even really need to talk about environmentalism when you're making the case for energy efficiency you're really just saying hey this is a this is a business benefit Um, you know the cost of energy is constantly fluctuating if we can reduce the amount of energy we use you know, it's, that's always going to be a good idea. So
0: getting around that first cost, that initial investment, yeah. if you, you know, whether it's an energy service company or utility incentive or somebody else coming in and then it, it becomes a no brainer. Are you saying that companies just do it or is there still sometimes resistance?
3: I think a lot has to do with, with communication, um, how, how you're making the case for it. Um, honestly, it depends on the type of company, you know, if you're, if you're a company that, it's a lot easier to make the case. And I saw this, uh, some of my fellow colleagues in the Climate Corps were working um, at some big companies and small companies. And for example, if you're a company that that's renting your building, you might be, le- depending on however your agreement is with your lease, you might be less interested in, like, for example, let's say utilities are included in your lease or in your rent. You might not care as much about the cost of energy. That's, that's when it gets maybe a little more difficult, but... Um, a lot of times, a lot of times it's the building owners that are kind of driving this now. So you might you might actually need to engage them first. Um, and um, if you're a big company that owns, you know, a company like Facebook and Apple, like they're all investing in this because they own they own you know so much so many buildings that co- that just cutting those costs can make a huge difference in their bottom lines. So you talked about the communications piece to this. That's kind of where you come in. I
0: mean, you're sort of at a at a pivotal moment in in your life and career. You're you're about in May to get your MPA from GW George Washington University what's that in what's the focus been
3: yeah so I've you know I've been working kind of in this, this the communications marketing side of, of energy since uh, my first job out of college I was working at a firm in San Francisco working with some uh, energy management and uh, renewable energy companies on strategic communications and uh, you know the last couple of years I've kind of played both sides of the podium as a journalist for you know companies like GreenBiz and also as a, as a marketing and communications uh, business guy Um I moved to Washington, D.C. to do this program mainly because I really think that you really need to understand the policy side of things to to, to, to really benefit in the business side. And yeah, I'm finishing up in, in May and hoping to come back to the Bay Area, which is my home and also happens to be the hub of, of energy, innovative energy companies at the moment. So. so
0: what's the dream? What's the dream job? Maybe, there's <laughs> maybe it's someone who has it is listening.
3: Uh, I mean, honestly, in the, in the, in the long, long run, I would love to work for myself because I, I, I enjoy, I enjoy consulting. Um, I, but I also, I like working with innovative companies, you know, I, I, I like, I like to be the guy who people come to, to, to ask for, you know, how do we get our message across? What, what's, what's the, what what's on the horizon policy wise, you know, what can we do and how can we, you know, how can we get our stakeholders on board? Like that seems to be a skill that I, that I'm, I'm pretty good at. So.
0: Yeah. Well, you've, uh, you, you've shown that here and, and certainly writing uh, at, at on the pages of Green Biz. So we'll see what we can do to get you back here in the Bay Area. Senior writer, Mike Howard, thanks for stopping by.
3: Thanks a lot, Joel.
1: This week has been great and all, but what is coming up next week? Joining me now is Green Biz Managing Editor Elsa Wenzel.
4: Hi, Lauren. Poor Lauren. You're so busy as (laughs) usual. So you are writing for our City View column. You're asking whether Singapore can become the world's first smart nation. So the island city-state is looking to become a model for sustainability As Joel might say, that's something to chew on. (laughs) Just Don't bring your gum if you ever visit Singapore. Do not. (laughs) You're also looking um, at how big corporations are catching on to on-demand carpooling. Ride and Uber play a role in that story. Uh, We'll also have a piece about how physicians are on the front lines of climate care. What does climate change have to do with health. David Wigder, who has written some nice pieces for us before, will tell you, and he's the head of research at Flipboard, the personal magazine app. Also, Laura Storm, the CEO of Sustainia, wrote about the four forces driving the next generation of climate leaders. Start with empathy, that's number one. And read more next week. That's all for now.
1: Awesome. We also do have a few free webcasts coming up on April 5th. You guys can register for free for the webcast Setting Our Sights on a Sustainable World, a Shift in Corporate Goal Setting. Then on April 19th, we'll switch gears with another free webcast on product stewardship and the challenges of a circular economy. In the meantime, there's also a very fun one coming up June 21st through 23rd. That's when we will be in Honolulu for Verge Hawaii, the Asia Pacific Clean Energy Summit. They are one of, are the first state to be targeting a 100% renewable energy goal. So interesting little test bed for a low carbon economy there.
0: And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can find the links to the organization, the stories, events, and things that we've mentioned in this episode by going to greenbiz.com 350. Thanks, as always, to 350's producer, Soraya Melkonian. Uh, You can subscribe to GreenBiz350 through a number of channels, including iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And you can find it every Friday morning on GreenBiz.com or through our daily email newsletter, GreenBuzz. You can also get GreenBiz News Daily, including 350, on your iPhone via the new Apple News app. That's kind of cool. Send us your feedback, your ideas, your comments. We'd love to hear from you. 350 at GreenBiz.com. From all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, have a great day.